Have you ever had the kind of nightmare that caused you to awaken from your deep sleep and to lay there in bed wondering what ogre was in the room with you? Your heart was pounding, your eyes looking into the darkness to see the monster? Well, I suppose from time to time all of us have had that. When you're young, you can get out of bed and go in, lay down with mom and dad and feel like everything is going to be all right. But when you get older, you just kind of lay there and wonder, now who do I hug? <laughs> Nebuchadnezzar had that kind of a dream. It was a nightmare. It caused him to awaken out of his deep sleep. And he was unable to get back to his rest. It was a terrifying experience to him. The story about this is told in our text in Daniel chapter 2, which is one of the most significant chapters of Bible prophecy. Its scope is breathtaking, for it outlines with complete accuracy the history of hundreds of years, and even reaches down to the end of this age in which we are living. The chronology as to when this dream took place is a little uncertain. Uh, verse 1 tells us that it was the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar. Now that uh, probably means that it was during the time that Daniel and his three friends were in training. That's a little hard to, uh, to put that all together with how Daniel was honored at the end of the chapter, but frankly it's not a big problem to me. It says it was that second year, and so we understand that Daniel and his friends uh, we're not with the rest of the magicians and the wise men and so on. Hence the chapter falls out as it does in the narrative. They were only trainees and were not a part of the official corps yet at this time. Daniel would have been, no, oh, perhaps 17 years of age when all of this took place. The chapter falls into four divisions as the narrative unfolds to us. The first division is verses 1 through 13 in the king's demand. It says, Nebuchadnezzar had, a, had dreams and his spirit was troubled. His sleep left him. And so he gave orders to call in the magicians, the conjurers, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans. Well, these were different groups of men who served him as advisors. Uh, the magicians were those who utilized charts to try to answer questions that the king might have as to the meaning of things like dreams. Uh, they were a part uh, of religious rituals that were used to, to try to discern the meaning of things. Those who were conjurers were enchanters and uh, used spells and words to work effects on behalf of the king. The sorcerers were those who were specialized in the use of potions and black magic. And they attempted to contact the dead, the purpose being to tell the future. The final term, the Chaldeans, uh, is used in Daniel sometimes as reference to all of the Babylonians. But here there seems to be a special class of wise men that are involved. Daniel calls everybody in, his whole cabinet, if you please, and he puts them, uh, the king puts them to the test. The king said to them, I had a dream and my spirit is anxious to understand the dream. 
So the Chaldeans spoke up first to the king in Aramaic. And it should be noted that at this point, the book of Daniel, as it was written, begins to be written in the Aramaic language, not the Hebrew language any longer. And uh, probably the words in Aramaic are in parenthesis, and the Chaldeans simply spoke to the king, and then parenthesis in Aramaic, the, language, the, the writing goes on. And they say, O king, live forever. Tell the dream to your servants, and we will declare the interpretation. These folks had a pretty good thing going. Because who's going to dispute them about the meaning of a dream? So they say, King, you tell us the dream and we'll tell you what it means. Well, the king answered and said, The command from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you will be torn limb from limb and your houses will be made a rubbish heap. You get the idea that he was pretty serious about this, don't you? But if you declare the dream and its interpretation, you will receive from me gifts and a reward and great honor. Therefore, declare to me the dream and its interpretation. Now, these fellows were in a real difficult spot because they didn't know what the dream was. And if they didn't come up with the answer, they weren't long for the world. And their houses were going to be turned into garbage pits. Well, they answered a second time and said, Let the king tell the dream to his servants, and we will declare the interpretation. And he answered, I know for certain that you are bargaining for time. We've all done that on occasion. Inasmuch as you have seen, the command from me is firm. And if you do not make the dream known to me, there is only one decree for you. And he's already given that. For you have agreed together to speak lying and corrupt words before me until the situations change. Therefore, tell me the dream that I may know that you can declare to me its interpretation. And so uh, he threatens them. He promises them reward. And they respond rather desperately. <clears throat> In verse 10, they say, There is not a man on earth who could declare the matter for the king, inasmuch as no great king or ruler has ever asked anything like this of any magician, conjurer, or Chaldean. Moreover, the thing which the king demands is difficult. That's saying the least. And there is no one else who could declare it to the king except gods whose dwelling place is not with mortal flesh. Now these fellows come up with an interesting confession at this point. They're the ones who are supposed to be able to talk to the gods and get the answer. And now they acknowledge in the king's presence that they've got a communication problem with the Babylonian gods. Well, King Nebuchadnezzar doesn't exactly uh, take kindly to this whole situation. In fact, in verse uh, 12, it says, He became indignant and very furious. Now, why was he so angry? Well, perhaps three reasons. In the first place, because of disappointment. He wanted an immediate answer to that which had troubled him so deeply, and he was not getting it. He was probably angry, too, because of disgust at these people who uh, were supported by the kingdom, who were his advisors and supposed to help him, and yet they were incapable of doing so. And then, thirdly, he was probably displeased because if 
of their criticism of him, which is not very well masked in verse 10. They said, no one in the history of the world has ever asked anything like this, Nebuchadnezzar. And you didn't exactly say things like that too often to a king like Nebuchadnezzar. Because you see, Nebuchadnezzar had many virtues, but self-control wasn't one of them. In fact, he was so angry and upset that it says he gave orders to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. And so the decree went out that every one of them was to be put to death. And that order embraced those who were still in training, like Daniel and his three friends. Well, we come now to the second division. And that is Daniel's response, verses 14 to 30. You'll notice that Daniel was not with them. That is, these magicians. We see his separation here. Daniel wanted to be identified differently. He did not want to be in the same group with all of the rest of these charlatans, if you please. These religious uh, charlatans and tricksters who lived off the king. He kept separate from them. And so when Arioch, the captain of the king's bodyguard, who seems to be also the chief of the executions, went to get Daniel. Daniel replied with discretion and discernment. You see a real contrast here, by the way, between the sovereign who is absolutely out of control, and as we will go on through the book, we'll see it's not the only occasion that he was that way, and Daniel, the man of God, who is absolutely in control, a 17-year-old young man who answers with discretion and discernment to the king uh, and to Arioch, his, his servant. And uh, he said, for what reason is the decree from the king so urgent? And then Arioch informed Daniel about the whole thing. And then we come to Daniel's initiation. Verse 16, he went in and requested of the king that he would give him time. Now again, this is highly unusual. You simply did not go in to see the king without being bidden to come in, without being invited. So Daniel took a real chance here in one sense in that he went into the king and asked for time and said that he would declare to him that interpretation. And it uh, is implied, obviously, that he got that time. And it seems as though, perhaps at this point, the killing stopped. Uh, it had been underway. There were wise men who were killed. Uh, but at this point, there seems to be a hold put on everything. And Daniel goes back now to uh, his friends. And they together begin to pray. And uh, it says that they prayed that they might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Nothing wrong with that prayer. And they asked God to give them the interpretation. And the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. Verse 19. Now technically there is a difference between a dream and a vision. A dream comes while one is in a state of sleep. But a vision comes when one is conscious. And so Daniel was in the night, undoubtedly praying, asking God for the interpretation. And God gave to him a vision so that with his eyes, he was able to see the very same thing that Nebuchadnezzar had seen in that dream. And Daniel blessed the God of heaven. 
You will notice that term, the God of heaven, in verse 18, again in verse 19. The God of heaven rules over the affairs of men. And Daniel blessed the Lord, and we see a marvelous prayer of adoration. Some beautiful phrases here that you and I can adapt for our own times of prayer before the Lord. And we learn a great deal. We could preach a whole sermon on the prayer, but that's not our purpose uh, tonight specifically. And then Daniel in verse 24, after having this time of prayer, went to Arioch again. And uh, he spoke to him saying, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Take me to the king's presence. I will declare the interpretation to the king. And Arioch hurriedly then brought Daniel into Nebuchadnezzar's presence. <laughs> and notice how he says this, verse 25. I have found a man. So you see a guy who's trying to take advantage of the whole situation, make a good point with the king. Nebuchadnezzar, I came up with uh, with the man who can tell you what the vision is all about. And so Daniel answered, uh, or the king rather answered to Daniel, and he said to him, make it known to me. And so Daniel declares to him, uh, as for the mystery about which the king has inquired, neither wise men, conjurers, magicians, diviners are able to declare it. However, there is a God in heaven. Notice again that very similar phrase. There is a God in heaven, Nebuchadnezzar, and he reveals mysteries. And he's made known to the king what will take place in the latter days. And so Daniel now begins to tell the king what the, this dream was all about. King God, the God of heaven, not Marduk, the God of your pantheon, the head of your pantheon, but the God of heaven has made known to you what is going to happen in the future. This was your dream and the visions in your mind while on your bed. As for you, O king, while on your bed your thoughts turn to what would take place in the future. And he who reveals mysteries has made known to you what will take place. And so Daniel not only tells what the dream was, but he tells what was on the king's mind that night he had the nightmare. He says, you were thinking about the future, and what was going to happen. And God gave you a dream to answer your concern. As for me, he says, this mystery has not been revealed to me for any wisdom residing in me more than in any other living man. Notice the humility of Daniel. Not at all desiring to take advantage of this situation to promote himself. He says, there's nothing in me. He said, but for the purpose of making the interpretation known to the king, and that you may understand the thoughts of your mind. And so now we come to the third division of the chapter. It is the interpretation of the, the dream. It's Revelation, verses 31 through 45. You, O king, were looking, and behold... There was a single great statue. And that statue, which was large and of extraordinary splendor, was standing in front of you, and its appearance was awesome. Now here is an image. It is not an idol that was to be worshipped, but it was a statue. And it was a magnificent thing, 
apparently very large and of splendor because of what it was composed of. And it says in verse 32, the head of the statue was made of fine gold, its breast and its arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. You continued looking until a stone was cut out without hands and it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and crushed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed all at the same time and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away so that not a trace of them was found, but the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. And so you see the, the picture, first of all, of Nebuchadnezzar just in awe before this great statue. And as he beholds it, the statue didn't do anything, but then he saw a stone that was cut out of a mountain, but it was not cut out by masons. It was cut out without hands in some means. We were not told how. And he saw that stone then come flying like a meteorite at that statue. And it hit the statue at its feet. And having hit the statue, the whole thing collapses. And though it was made of precious metals in part, the whole thing goes to dust. And it just flies everywhere like the wind carrying away the chaff of wheat at a threshing floor. And then an amazing thing happens. As he watches, that stone cut out without hands, begins to grow and grow and grow until it becomes a great mountain itself. And it says that it filled the whole earth. And so there was the dream. The magicians couldn't come up with this. But God revealed it to Daniel. And Daniel now has revealed the dream to Nebuchadnezzar. And so Nebuchadnezzar can know now that this interpretation <clears throat> that is given is accurate. I mean, if Daniel can give the dream, the interpretation is, is to him uh, uh, perhaps even a lesser thing. And so he says, now we shall tell the interpretation before the king. He says, you, O king, are the king of kings. That is a title meaning that Nebuchadnezzar did, in fact, rule over many kingdoms, lesser kings. To whom the God of heaven, notice again that same title, has given the kingdom, the power, the strength, and the glory. And wherever the sons of men dwell, or the beasts of the field, or the birds of the air, he has given them into your hand and has caused you to rule over them all. You are the head of gold. Now the language here means that uh, as far as there was civilization known in that day, uh, Nebuchadnezzar was the, going to be the ruler over it. And uh, I would imagine Nebuchadnezzar was rather thrilled with point number one. Uh, and Daniel didn't tell it to him to flatter him, but you had to know that when he said, you're the, the head of gold, that Nebuchadnezzar's eyes lit up. But he says, after you. Well, now there's a little letdown. 
Sometimes kings uh, like to think that they're going to last forever, but not even Nebuchadnezzar did. There will, be, there will arise another kingdom inferior to you, then another third kingdom of bronze, which will rule over all the earth. And again, that's the known civilization of that day. <clears throat> then there will be a fourth kingdom, as strong as iron, Inasmuch as iron crushes and shatters all things, so like iron that breaks in pieces, it will crush and break all these in pieces. And in that you saw the feet and toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it will be a divided kingdom. Better understanding of that, it will be a composite kingdom. But it will have in it the toughness of iron, inasmuch as you saw the iron mixed with common clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of pottery, so some of the kingdom will be strong and part of it will be brittle. And in that you saw the iron mixed with common clay, they will combine with one another in the seed of men. They will not adhere to one another, even as iron does not combine with pottery. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. And as much as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future. So the dream is true. And its interpretation is trustworthy. Now in this remarkable vision, or dream rather, that was given to Nebuchadnezzar, God gives to him understanding of the historical succession of several kingdoms or empires. You will immediately notice that the quality, the value of the component parts of the image decrease as you start with the head and work down to the feet and to the toes. It diminishes in weight, that is, in specific gravity, which would lead us to understand that this great image, this statue, is top-heavy. It is top-heavy, and it does not have a sufficient foundation for its weight, and therefore must at some time collapse. Each part of it is distinct, you notice. And yet there is a commonality to it. There is a unity that runs throughout it. And we understand that unity to be Gentileness, if you please. Because what is given to Nebuchadnezzar here is a broad outline of Gentile world domination. And though there are different empires and different races of people, the commonality is that they are all Gentiles in the first four of the kingdoms that are described. Well, very clearly, the first one is Babylon, the head of gold. The second one is said to be of silver. And although it's not identified here as we look over in chapter 7 and particularly in chapter 8, we see it specifically named. And it is the empire that, that followed Babylon. 
that indeed destroyed Babylon and then came to power. It was the empire of the Medes and the Persians. And Daniel lived right until those days and until the first years of that empire. We'll be seeing more about that in weeks ahead. So although it's not named here, we know from additional revelation in the book exactly what that empire is all about. You see, it conquered and absorbed Babylon into itself. But then the Medes and the Persians also were destroyed by the third empire that arose. Again, it's not named here, but it is named for us specifically in chapter 7 and 8 in particular. And it is Greece. And the armies of Alexander the Great, who is prophesied in particular in uh, this book of Daniel, destroyed the Medes and the Persians, and then absorbed the Medes and the Persian Empire into it. And so you had this great nation of Greece under Alexander the Great and then uh, his successors. And that brings us to the fourth kingdom, which is not named anywhere in the book. But uh, as we look at it in light of world history, we understand that the fourth kingdom was Rome, which again destroyed the empire of Greece, absorbed the Hellenistic influence into itself, and uh, continued Gentile world domination. However, an interesting thing happened with Rome. It began in 63 B.C., but it had no ending officially like the others did that preceded it. Rome, over the several hundred years of its existence, grew in power and might. And as it talks here about the strength of Rome, this fourth empire was the strength of of its armies. Wherever they tramped, they, they conquered. And they held great power over peoples. And the empire stretched from the Atlantic Ocean all the way over to the, to, uh, the, the border of what is today India. And from the north, uh, it went into the southern part of what is Russia and, and Middle Europe today, down to northern Africa. It was a vast, vast empire. It sought to bring together lots of different kinds of peoples and cultures. It never did successfully form a conglomeration. They never congealed, but there was a forced unity because of the power, the strength of Rome to crush any opposition. The thing that is so unique about Rome, as you know, is that it did not become conquered from the outside, but it decayed from the inside. And although Rome was eventually uh, conquered, uh, the city of Rome, uh, nonetheless, the Roman Empire in its influence did not cease. It was absorbed into the Roman Catholic Church and into other political entities, and the world entered into what is sometimes called the the Middle Ages, the Dark Ages, and uh, Rome just sort of petered out. Its influence still there, but certainly under the surface. Uh, we can still say that today, 
Rome's influence is felt in our own culture. We are the descendants, if you please, most of us, of the Roman Empire. And then an amazing thing happens. There is a pause in this flow, a pause that lasts who knows how long, but I'm going to say about 1,500 years. Because an amazing thing takes place as Daniel interprets this vision. That which sort of just passed away because of decay from within is reconstituted. That which was not conquered but simply uh, lost its political influence in the latter days is seen as coming back together, as redeveloping in the feet and in the toes in particular of this image. Now verse 42 really picks it up at that point. As the toes of the feet were partly of iron, partly of pottery, so the kingdom will be strong, part of it will be strong, and part of it will be brittle. And that you saw the iron mixed with common clay, they will combine with one another in the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, even as iron does not combine with pottery. That's a similar description in verse 41, and yet it's repeated, isn't it? Which seems to indicate that in one sense, as Rome was when it disintegrated, so it will sort of reappear. It is very interesting to think of the developments taking place in that part of the world, particularly in Europe, today, in light of all of this. The idea that there could even be uh, an economic unity, not to mention political unity, but economic unity in that part of Europe was just, uh, it was unthinkable except to people who believe the Bible. But because of the wall of communism that cut right down through Europe and through the very territories that belonged to the Roman Empire, that were the heart of its, of its uh, empire in its day. <clears throat> and yet, Amazingly, in the last few months, we have seen that wall come down to some degree. And those nations that were divided economically are talking, how can we help each other? West Germany and East Germany. Um, Poland going to these other European countries for help. Czechoslovakia doing the same thing. Those countries, in part at least, were uh, members of that the land belonged to the Roman Empire. You say, well, how is all of this going to come together and what are the ten toes? Well, we, we're not going to look at it tonight, but over in the book of Revelation, there is a description of ten kingdoms that come together that are parallel to the ten toes of Daniel. Say, what are those ten kingdoms, those ten countries? I don't know. I don't think we can know today, but I do expect that as time progresses and this whole thing gets closer to reality, it's all going to fall into place. It will become clear to us, 
assuming that we're still living, that this is the generation that the Bible speaks about in which we live, it will become increasingly clear to us how Europe is going to be fashioned uh, into ten kingdoms that will cooperate together in which, as we will see later in Daniel and then again in Revelation, out of which Antichrist comes forth. Isn't it interesting that it says part of the kingdom is strong and part of it's weak? There is an attempt, it seems, by the powers in this last period of the Roman Empire, again, to bring together different kinds of people, different races and cultures of people. Isn't that part of the struggle right now in those countries of Middle Europe? You could Czechoslovakia with three different cultures within that political realm. and The same is true with, with other countries there. And there will be an attempt yet in these last days to bring together, unsuccessfully in the end, but to try to bring together uh, a power block out of those nations that will comprise the reconstituted Roman Empire. But the most exciting part of the passage is what is said concerning this stone that is seen hewn out of the mountain without the aid of human hands and which absolutely destroys the statue. Daniel says that this is the kingdom that God will establish. We understand it as the kingdom of the Messiah. This is the kingdom of Jesus Christ that is spoken of. This reconstituted empire of Rome that we will see, I think, developing in coming months and years is going to be a very important player in the days of the tribulation. <clears throat> and when the Lord Jesus Christ comes again, he is going to destroy that empire and its leader, Antichrist, and he's going to destroy it thoroughly. We learn several things here about Christ's kingdom. In the first place, as we've said, it's established by God, not by men. Uh, it's concerning to me that there's a, a sect, a splinter group of uh, basically the charismatic movement that is what is called the Kingdom Now people. They are teaching that it is up to Christians to by force, if necessary, take over the government and establish the law uh, of God in this nation. And uh, dominion theology is another name for it. You may pick it up in some of the books that are written on prophecy. You need to be watchful for that. But the whole idea is that it's up to us to bring about the kingdom by by taking charge. God's given us authority. Let's take charge of the political realm and so on. No, listen, the kingdom of Jesus Christ will come without the aid of men. God will establish this kingdom. <clears throat> it is a stone that is hewn out without human hands. It is an earthly kingdom. Just as earthly as the first four, so will be the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Now, there is a, an aspect of the kingdom that now exists, the invisible aspect, the hidden aspect. 
<clears throat> but do not let that make you think that there will never be a kingdom on the earth, for there will be, just as literally, just as truly as there was a Babylon, a Media Persia, Greece, and Rome, and a final Rome, so there will be the kingdom of Jesus Christ on the earth. And it will be established at the time when these ten kingdoms come back together as, as the Roman Empire. We notice that it comes suddenly and decisively. It's not progressive. It doesn't happen slowly. It's not the gospel permeating culture and eventually turning everything around and Christianizing the world. But rather it is the kingdom coming like a meteorite, quickly, decisively, suddenly, and it strikes the statue at its feet in that final form of Gentile domination. And as a result of it striking the feet and the toes, the whole thing collapses. For you see, all of these kingdoms fit into one another. There is a certain sense in which each one became a part of the succeeding empires. So that when that final form of it is destroyed, they're all destroyed at the same time. It quickly then, this kingdom of the Christ becomes worldwide. Let me just read to you a statement that uh, I think is a good one by Chuck Swindoll. He says, as the smiting stone in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, the Lord will not absorb, restructure, or adapt to previous kingdoms. He will totally annihilate them and set up his own monarchy, which will be absolutely perfect politically, morally, economically, and religiously. And then he will rule over the earth for his reign of a thousand years, and his reign will go on throughout eternity. <clears throat> it is Lehman Strauss who points out to us that in the progression of the Gentile powers, we start out with an autocratic kingdom. We have a king who rules with absolute authority in Nebuchadnezzar. And then we have an oligarchic kingdom in Media Persia. And then when we come to Greece, we have uh, an imperialistic kind of kingdom. When you come to Rome, and these all then flow into one another, then when you come to Rome, you have an emphasis on a democratic kind of kingdom. Uh, Rome, you see, tried to combine the strength and the power of the Senate and of Caesar with democracy, the rule of the people. And that will be the ploy of the last days too, and, and yet it will not succeed. Well, <clears throat> we have to conclude by looking now at this last division of the chapter. It is the king's response to all of this. Notice that Nebuchadnezzar fell in his face. Critics of the Bible say, now here is proof that this is absolute nonsense. For no king ever fell on, the face, on his face before a prophet. Well, they're wrong. Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face and did homage to Daniel and gave orders to present him to him an offering and fragrant incense. The king answered Daniel and said, Surely your God is a God of gods and a Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries since you have been able to reveal this mystery. 
I don't understand this so much as Nebuchadnezzar worshiping Daniel as his worshiping the God of Daniel by what he did here. Not that he was converted from his polytheism at this point. He was, he was still a worshiper of many gods. He didn't become a monotheist now. Maybe he did later. We'll talk about that. But not at this point. And yet he recognized the supremacy, the superiority of Daniel's God. And the king promoted Daniel, gave him many great gifts. <clears throat> and he made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. So Daniel was put over everybody. Uh, this is why it's a little tough uh, to understand this as being during his training period, that three-year period, you remember, when he was a trainee. Uh, maybe the promotion waited until after that. It's a little tough to put all that together, but the point is that because of what God did through Daniel, Daniel was placed into that position and then Daniel made request to the king and had Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego uh, appointed as his helpers. And they assisted him in the administration. Daniel's office was in the White House. And then these other three fellows were in the executive office building across the street. And they helped him carry out certain administrations for King Nebuchadnezzar. Well, I tell you, this is an amazing chapter. <clears throat> and we only get the... Uh, uh, the broad sweep of it here. As we get in on to further visions in Daniel, we're going to see more specifics exposed regarding the things that are said in this chapter. I hope you'll hang in there with us. I want you to go away tonight with this thought. That the God of heaven rules over the affairs of earth. Not just in the kingdoms of the world, but also in your life. If you're his child tonight, God is sovereign, friend, and whatever you're passing through, will you trust God? Will you realize that God is bigger than Nebuchadnezzar, and God is bigger than Cyrus, and God is bigger than Alexander the Great, and, and God did away with the Caesars, and, and, and God has now, we think, begun to put together the empire of Rome that he said long ago would be put back together. God is bigger than all of that. God can take care of your life and mine. He's a big God. So let's trust him with our lives this week and, and let's be obedient to him. Let's pray. Now, Father, we worship you as the God of heaven who reveals mysteries we acknowledge to you that there are many questions that uh, remain unanswered in our minds, even regarding this text and some of its implications and fine points. There are some things you have not chosen to reveal to us, but my, what an amazing revelation this is. We acknowledge you as the God of history. We acknowledge you as our Father and that this is your world in which we live. That we hold your hand and you hold ours and we walk with you. And so we entrust our today and our tomorrow to you. 
In Jesus' name, amen.